Welcome to the Voices in Japan podcast with Ben and Burke. On this episode, we are joined by Ido Gabai, who is the founder of Hokkaido Nature Tours. They are a Sapporo based, award winning company that specializes in private tours around Hokkaido. We get an in depth look at Ido's background starting from the time that he left Israel when he was very young to move to the United States, the factors that fueled his desire to start traveling and backpack through over 65 countries, which is just crazy. And he also taught English in a few different countries, including two stints on the JET program here in Japan before finally settling down in Hokkaido to start Hokkaido Nature Tours. This was a great opportunity to meet the man behind the business, and please check out their website at HokkaidoNatureTours.com to find out everything they have to offer and to book your own customized private tour. I don't know. I don't know about you at all. And, and it's crazy. I've known you for so long, but、mm. there's so much stuff, you know, you don't really get to know about someone. And I think that's what's so good about a podcast. You can kind of ask these questions that you、mm. wouldn't really ask them if you're in person. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a bit weird about podcasting in that way. Yeah. I've listened to a few of your podcasts and I like that about you guys. You guys, you're always going for like a more personal feeling and it's not. About, you know, it's not strictly limited to a topic. It's more about getting to know the person. So that's cool. It's a cool vibe. Yeah, it's、uh, great. The guests、uh, want to talk about things that way. So, so、uh, yes,、yeah, so、I guess I'll, I'll just do like a, a short intro. I mean, this is a very brief intro, and we're going to go into a lot more details later on. But you were born in Israel, immigrated to America when you were, what, seven? So、mm-hmm. pretty young.、Mm-hmm. Um, Then he lived in America, graduated from university or、uh, studying economics and mathematics. Yep.、Um, and then after that, you left America, taught English in South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan、yeah. um, as a way to, to finance your travels.、Mm. And then in 2016, you started Hokkaido Nature Tours, HNT,、uh, mm-hmm. a company based in Sapporo, mainly a、uh, Focusing on private tours, right? Private tours right. around right. Hokkaido. Well,、wow. so that's the, that's the summary of your life, Edo, basically there. Yeah, that'll be on the, on the、uh, I guess,、uh, eulogy or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so just going back to, man, I, I never knew that you were actually born in Israel. I always assumed that you were born in America, but you were born in Israel, moved to America, and you were seven. Do you,、uh, do you have like a memory of, of that time? I mean, seven's pretty young. Yeah, I mean, the memories that I have from Israel are, are more like、um, kind of picture cards. You know, they're kind of like images in my head、um, and memories of being with my family or going to the shop with my brother to buy a little basketball hoop. You know, those kind of simple memories, childlike memories.、Uh, but, you know, the Israel that I left, which was in 1987, is, is so different than the Israel of today. And that's what I, you know, I get from talking to my family, to my relatives. Because you know, I still go back to Israel every year or two years. And I speak Hebrew, so I'm able to speak with them and understand you know,、uh, really how Israel has changed. And seeing Israel today, it's really totally different than the Israel I grew up in. So leaving Israel, the most I can remember is like child, you know, childlike memories. And most of the memories I have of 
you know, growing up, actually come from America. Uh, which part of America is that? So I grew up in Boston, outside of Boston, in, okay. um, in, a, in a suburb called Newton. And uh, a lot of Israelis there, too. I mean, especially American Jews, a lot of American Jews. So we used to joke around that it was like uh, a rose in bloom on every corner, you know, because it was <laughs> called City of Gardens. Uh, um, you know, that was nice. And in, in fact, like, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, Jewish culture and Jewish people around me. So. Uh, that never that never felt like I was so removed, but the fact that we were actually Israeli is what you know really didn't sink into me until later on in life, and um, and how different the the cultural you know the basis of the cultures from where I was you know born in the first few formative years to where I grew up, and that always was a, a difference for me you know. Um, looking back on it, you know, and I was the one who tried to assimilate the most. I have an older brother, an older sister. My brother's seven years older. My sister is three and a half. So we're kind of spaced out like that. And it was hardest for my brother in the adjustment and my sister. And finally, I was the one who was most assimilated, um, so to speak. And uh, as it turned out, you know, I'm the one who lives furthest away in Asia. Uh, so, you know, it, it was it was strange that even, you know, with everything that, you know, growing up in a culture in America, in Newton, that was actually very progressive. It was something that I always felt uh, different. And that kind of crystallized later on, especially, you know, experiences I had at university and things like that. But during my childhood, I, always, I tried to assimilate, you know, within a few years, my English was fine, was perfect. You know, I didn't have an accent or, uh, you know, any problems with uh, studying or vocabulary. All my friends were American-born friends almost, you know. so. It was. Uh, it all seemed to be on the track for the American dream, so to speak. How about um? How about your family? Were they all before they went to America? Was their English level like good enough to to be able to live in America? Like your brother and sister were a bit older than you, so did they did they have struggles? Yeah, I mean, my brother was thirteen, so he was kind of at a cusp, you know. They say where language and assimilation. Uh, my sister was 10, so it took all of us a few years. Uh, but what was hardest was not actually the language or the um, the like school part of it, the scholastic. What was hardest was the cultural part of it. And that was, um, was really hard for my brother. And uh, for him, he ended up um, leaving America in his early 20s. He had a lot of difficult experiences. He ended up going back to Israel. And he joined the military there. My sister, uh, she was there, and then until the mid mid twenties, late twenties, she also had a variety of uh, of issues like health problems. She also moved back to Israel. So all three of us really didn't find ourselves culturally in America, and we always felt somewhat like this wasn't really our home. And we used to, you know, when we would take family trips to Israel, we used to say, "Oh, Israel is so wonderful, so wonderful. We wish we could go back to Israel." As kids, you know, you don't know, a kid doesn't understand the totality of that. Uh, but my mother would always say, oh, you know, you're just here on vacation. You don't understand what life is like here. But I think what we were really talking about is that we didn't feel at home in America. You know, we didn't feel like that was our country. And, uh, you know, being adults and all of us moving away from America kind of proved that out. I mean, is that because the cultures are really different or was it like just some un unfortunate experiences that happened or... I mean, maybe for your brother and stuff, it was just his, his age and everything. But do you remember for yourself what it was? It didn't really feel like uh, you ever completely assimilated? 
Well, uh, you know, I tried. I tried to assimilate very much, and I didn't think that I didn't assimilate. You know, okay. I thought that I assimilated. I went to university. I even joined a fraternity. It was only during university when I had some experiences with kind of, you could say, the 1% culture, you know, because I went to a private liberal arts college. I was kind of geared towards, um, you know, making money in my life and having a career. I was going to go to Wall Street, you know, work in finance, studying economics and mathematics. So it was kind of like paved, you know, the yellow brick road was kind of paved for me. But in those experiences and, you know, living close together with, with a group of guys, and not that I, I don't have anything against any of them and some of them I'm still friends with and in touch with, but just the overall culture uh, of American culture and how they viewed the world, it always different from, from how I felt like I viewed the world. And it took me leaving America to be able to crystallize that, to understand that. But I think a big part of it is the fact that, you know, we're Israeli. And Israel is a very unique culture. It's a really special country. And uh, no Israeli that leaves Israel ever, ever really leaves Israel. You know, anybody that's from there and grew up there or, you know, in my case, I was only there till the age of seven. But of course, in our house, you know, we spoke Hebrew and, and had Israeli customs. So, you know, the impression of Israel is a very strong impression. And I think that's what it comes down to. Um, and many, many Israelis, even though they leave, they come back to Israel later on in their life. I don't know if that'll happen to me, you know, but in terms of people who have a deeper impression of Israel, for me, it was more like you know, something didn't fit. You know, I didn't think my, my home was Israel necessarily, but I felt, especially by the age of my early 20s, like my home was not really America. You know, I, you know, I needed to search for something else. So there was a lot of uh, unanswered questions at that time. And that's when I left. You know, I, I, um, I finished my university degree. And uh, I guess, you know, what allowed me to, to leave was also a, an experience I had while I was uh, a student, which is I had a semester off. And it so happens, you know, the summer before my junior year, I was working in, uh, in a country club. I was like, you know, waiting tables and schmoozing with wealthy people, whatever you do. And I met this um, singer, actually. She was a, a lead singer in a kind of a jazz funk band. And I totally felt crazy for her, and it was really nuts. And so I had this opportunity to take off a semester in university in junior year. And so I went to Boston from New York where I went to school, and uh, we ended up moving in together. And it was like kind of a flash forward of my life, you know, in the sense that uh, I was working for a financial company. I had like a temp job, um, and I was living with my girlfriend and her two dogs. So I had this kind of like, uh, okay, you know, flash forward, this is what my life is, is going to, you know, materialize as. And, you know, job in finance, uh, wife, you know, some kids, you know, pseudo dogs and kids. And it was, it was just overwhelming, you know. And all my friends had gone abroad in their semester, in their free semester, so to speak. They'd gone to Europe, like this, to study. So when, we, when I went back senior year to university, and then, you know, got back together with my friends and heard all about their adventures. That probably, you know, laid a seed in me, you know, that I hadn't done enough yet. And, and it's time to go and, and go out of America and, and stretch my legs a bit. And um, so I think that was, a, that was a part of that experience. And then, you know, going to leaving America, I went to Israel. And, you know, just to kind of see what Israel was about, maybe work there for a little while. And I had the intention of traveling in Europe. Uh, and then during that time, it was the Intifada in 2002. So this is like a horrible war period in Israel and very difficult. There were not even jobs. I remember the only job that I really uh, had a chance was some like line cook at a resort on the beach, you know. And uh, I was like, OK, might as well take the little bit of money I have before it's gone and travel. 
So I bought the cheapest ticket I could find and flew to Turkey. And that's where I started backpacking. And, and within a week in Turkey, you know, in southern Turkey, there is pretty amazing. It's actually, there's a place that is the source of the Olympic flame. That's where the Olympic flame come, comes from. It's called Olympus, the name of the town. And there is a volcano with like methane coming out of it. And all the time it's like, it's lit, you know, and it's not a huge fire. It's just these little methane fires coming out. And uh, I remember it was around that, you know, the first week of being in Turkey where I was like, okay, I got to go, you know, I got to travel the world and see as much as I can do. And, uh, and then the rest was how to get that done. So a few weeks later, I met uh, a woman who had just come back from teaching in South Korea. And believe it or not, that was the first time I heard about teaching English in Asia. And I couldn't believe what she was telling me, you know, like get a job online. They're going to fly you to Korea. They're going to get you a visa. You're going to have a free apartment, you know. <laughs> uh, the pay is pretty good. The job is not going to kill you. You know, you're not going to have to pick strawberries in the fields or anything, you know. So uh, it was pretty, pretty amazing. And, um, and then, yeah, through my trip, that idea was, was in my head. And eventually I was uh, in Germany and I applied from a friend of mine's house. And I got the job, you know, within a few applica applications. And that was it. Basically, a couple of months later, I flew from London where I finished my Europe trip and they paid for everything. And it was to the point where, you know, I arrived in Asia for the first time with $50, five zero. Oh. Now I spend them on dinner, you know, and, and that's what you do when you're 21. You know, you don't even, I didn't even think like this is strange, you know. So I arrived with $50. And the first thing I did was ask for uh, advance from my recruiter. <laughs> You know, before I even got to my apartment, you know? <laughs> so right away he probably was like, "Okay, who did I get here?" You know, <laughs> which random person from the world. Um, but yeah, it all worked out, and uh, I was with a good organization there, and I ended up working two jobs because uh, my my focus was just to keep traveling. You know, so I had this huge student loan debt I had to make payments on. I had to make money and save money. And in Korea, you know, I met my first uh, expat friends. You know. And I uh, had amazing times there, too. So it kind of all started from from that, you know, talk with that one woman who told me about teaching English, you know, and she put the seed in me. And then it just gave me the wherewithal. Yeah, we all have that. Uh, I remember very vividly the person who let me know about the possibility of teaching English overseas, specifically in Japan. And uh, yeah, it was like uh, opportunity that couldn't be passed. I don't know. We may be around the same age. Uh, the time when I graduated university too, like the U.S. in the U.S., the internet bubble had burst. So uh, I worked really hard for a couple of years, but everything was just such a bad situation that it made sense for me to go overseas. It kind of sounds a little bit like you. There were some things that kind of lined up and was just like, you know, going overseas was the best option. So you taught English in a in a few places, right? Yeah, so in Korea, I was there uh, at an Ikaiwa, you know, at an English teaching academy and teaching second job at a kindergarten. Um, and then, you know, when I ended up going traveling, you know, I took all the money I had and, you know, spent as much as I could traveling. And that trip was uh, 19 months. So that was really a formative trip for me. Like the first one in Europe was like six months, but it was the next trip that I realized there doesn't have to be a time limit, you know, it's really a, a limit on uh, maybe finances or interest, uh, especially the way I travel. Uh, so I traveled extremely frugally, you know, that's probably the main reason why I did all this overland travel. You know, I never thought, oh, I want to go to this country, I'll get on an airplane and fly there from this country. 
oh, I'm in this country now. Let me fly to the next country because that would be like, what, $500? I can live off that for a month. Why would I do that, you know? So every country to me was worthwhile. Every day was worthwhile. And that was it. Just like, you know, budget travel, stayed in $5 a night, you know, hotels and hostels, ate from markets all the time, you know, didn't go to restaurants, uh, you know, didn't pay for expensive activities, you know, really trying to make the money last. Um, and that was, that kind of set a tone for me. Um, you know, and it's amazing. And I'll tell you later about my wife and she managed to travel with me on those standards too, which is amazing. You know? Because- yeah. I was, I was about to ask, did you, did you a lot of, uh, did you do a lot of solo traveling or were you like traveling with friends or did you just meet people on the way and then make good group of friends to like travel with? Cause I, I did some backpacking and it's amazing how when you meet someone you kind of click with, you just happen to just start traveling with them. You know, and there's no like set plan. It's like, oh, let's go here. Do you want to come? Yeah, why not? And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, let's, you know, you want to do something different and the other, your traveling partner wants to go somewhere else too. So then you, you go your separate ways and then you meet someone else and you kind of keep repeating that and you make these like, I guess you make kind of good friends, but then eventually you kind of lose touch after a few years. Like I, the people I've met traveling, like on my backpacking trails, I don't, I don't keep in touch with them at all because I think back then, there was no, there was no social media, you know, people might have been on Facebook at that time, like, um, early two thousands. Um, so, and you know, you're not going to exchange phone numbers because you're, you're traveling around the world. No one's going to call you, uh, maybe email, I think back then, but then, you know, when you're that age, no one's checking their emails that often when you're traveling. Yeah. So yeah, I was just wondering if, um, if like the case with you, did you do a lot of solo traveling or was it with other people? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's really fortunate for me that when I left, I didn't go from America to backpacking. You know, I went from America to Israel and then I was kind of in Israel. What am I going to do? It's a terrible situation. After six weeks, I left Israel. So I think if it had been like going from America to Israel, it would have been harder just to go on my own. You know, it's my first trip. But as it happened, I was in Israel and then I was like, well, I'm not going to stay in Israel. I'm not going to go back to America yet. Okay, let me just gamble and go to, you know, try. And, um, and then very quickly, I realized that I love traveling alone. So all, almost all my trips, I did it alone. And, you know, in my life, you know, if I spent my life waiting for people to do what I wanted to do, I would do a lot less of what I wanted, you know, because it's really hard to get people to do what, what, what one wants to do, you know, what I want to do. You know, if people want to come along, that's one thing. Uh, but like you said, as soon as I started traveling, I mean, I think it was like within a couple of days, you realize, wow, there's a whole hostel scene, you know, there's a whole backpacking scene, especially then, you know, when it was still much more based upon, you know, talking to people to get information. You know, when I started backpacking in 2002, we didn't have this like Wi-Fi everywhere. We didn't have internet. We didn't have everything online, all the resources. We were using books. We were talking to people. And, I, you know, I think that was like a big part of the camaraderie. Like, oh, tell me stories. Where have you been? What's been awesome? You're coming from this direction? Tell me about it. I'd love to hear, you know. And there was this amazing kind of buzz that, you know, I discovered when I started backpacking. And that kind of, that lasted all the way through my backpacking until probably, uh, you know, 2000 and um, when I started traveling with my wife. <laughs> and, and that's the truth. You know, when you're traveling with, uh, with a partner, with a wife, um, it's really much harder to have those same experiences that you have when you're alone. And when you're alone, every, 
one, everybody wants to meet you, you know, because, oh, this guy, you know, you don't have the pretense, or, you know, you don't have walls, you know, or, you know, kind of familiarity to separate you from your environment. You're kind of much more open to what you're encountering. So being alone was actually an amazing way to meet people. And then, of course, you meet like-minded people. Uh, some of my best friends from traveling, I'm still in touch with them and I still see them, you know, even 10 years, 15 years separated. Because these are like really soul brothers and sisters, you know, they're really people who share a kind of uh, way of living and way of viewing the world, of exploration, of discovery, of being fascinated by people and cultures and places. And that, you know, for me, that's uh, probably my favorite thing in the world, you know, is to travel and to, to go and see places and meet people and experience, have new experiences. So uh, when you meet, when I meet people like that, you know, it just bonds us. So yeah, at times you travel with someone for a day. At times you meet someone for an afternoon. At times travel with someone, you know, for a month, you know, spontaneously. So there was no rhyme or reason, you know, and obviously you meet boys and girls and this and that. So you have romances and it's just, you know, you, I was living that time of my life when I was backpacking in a way that every day I woke up saying, oh my God, there's nothing else I want to do. There's nothing else I want to do. There's nowhere else I want to be. And to live with that kind of contentment, it's like, A, it's infectious, you know, when people meet you. But B, it just makes you live in the moment and just, you know, able to go through anything. Go through anything, you know. And that's the kind of drive I had because I was so in love with the process of, of waking up every day in a foreign country and discovering what it is. Uh, and, and just meeting incredible people because, you know, like you guys know, it's not just about the local people you meet, you know, it's about the other travelers also that you meet. And, you know, the backpacking world, the backpacking circuit is filled with people from all over the world, you know, and, and that kind of uh, community is, is just really special. Do you remember um, meeting your wife? And could you tell us what that was like? Oh, for sure, for sure. The first time you guys met. Yeah, my wife and I met in uh, northern India. Well, to back back it up a little bit, after my first like epic trip in Asia, I went to teach in Taiwan. So that was the second country I taught at. Uh, And there, um, like more like really formative experiences. So I can actually like kind of calibrate my life to before Taiwan, my traveling life before Taiwan and after Taiwan because of what happened to me there. And uh, in Taiwan, you know, I, let's say I arrived in Taiwan, you know, after traveling 19 months around Asia, single man, you know, I had like $10,000 when I started that trip, which is just like, you know, the amount of money that felt like, you know, living <laughs> on $20 a day, you know, it was like, man, I am rich, you know, <laughs> and I still finished, I got to Taiwan with like $1,000 somehow. It was just, you know, mind boggling how I made that money stretch. Uh, but I got there and I was very much still in a kind of uh, hedonistic mentality, you know, because very much a part of this, you know, fulfillment of backpacking and traveling is to enjoy every day, you know, enjoy and, and just get as much as you can out of every day. So I brought I was like that when I got to Taiwan and, you know, the consequences was like I was a heavy smoker by then, you know, I was smoking like 15, 20 cigarettes a day. Never said no to a party, you know, like just, you know, burning it at both ends. Meanwhile, trying to work and make money again in the whole hustle. So uh, actually within a couple of months in Taiwan, I got very sick. You know, you think you're bulletproof at that age. So um, 
you know, the, I had it started with like some, you know, things coming up from my chest. But I was still like playing basketball and swimming, going out, smoking, whatever. You know, you don't think about it. Think you're bulletproof. And then it just got kind of worse and worse. And, you know, sorry for any disgust, but like the, the phlegm, you know, the, the amount of phlegm coming up was getting bigger and bigger. But as a 24-year-old, I wasn't even thinking about it. I'm bulletproof. Anyways, I was in a foreign country, too. I was in Taiwan. I just arrived there. I didn't know the healthcare system. I didn't know the hospital system. That was another kind of mental hurdle. And it happened to me that it just like flipped on me very quickly. And I remember I was in the shower, getting ready to go out uh, with my girlfriend then at the time. And um, in the shower, I just felt like, whoa, you know, like a wave of something really bad coming on me. And I was like, okay, uh, I think I maybe had the flu or something. It felt like a flu, like a fever, you know? So I was like, okay, probably not gonna go out, you know? And uh, so I canceled the plans and she stayed in with me. And, uh, you know, by the next morning, by the middle of that night, sorry, I was coughing up blood. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, the, what I thought to myself was like, okay, I've seen enough movies, you know? <laughs> the guy coughs up blood, the next scene is not a good one, you know? Whatever happens, is not a good one. And the next scene wasn't good. I go to the hospital, it was like middle of the night, some young doctor, he just gave me some like uh, flu, flu pills, whatever he said, go home, you'll be okay. I was like, sweet, you know? Well, the next morning I woke up, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't physically stand up. My my chest was burning, you know. Uh, my roommate, my girlfriend had to carry me to the taxi to take me to the hospital. And they see me in the hospital and they say, you either have pneumonia or tuberculosis. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about these things. You know, I was like, tuberculosis. I said to the doctor, wasn't that eradicated? <laughs> tuberculosis. <laughs> so, and what I remember also is uh, while they were doing pre-check on me, they told me to wait. I told my girlfriend, listen, take me out to the, to the parking lot. I want to have another cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> coughing like up blood. Yeah, <laughs> coughing up blood. And she took me out to the parking lot. And I remember having the cigarette. I was in a wheelchair by this point. I couldn't talk. <laughs> I mean, this is like catastrophic, you know? How do you get to that point? But that's the kind of, you know, illusion I was living in. And I remember smoking the cigarette and, and I took the drag and I could just feel my lungs burning, you know? It was bad, you know? And so I stayed in the hospital for a week. You know, you know, it's serious when the doctors come over and they don't try to make jokes. You know, usually the doctors try to make jokes, lighten things up. You know, it's bad when they're not making jokes and they're very somber. But within a few days, IV and this treatment, that treatment, I started to make a turnaround. And within a week, they sent me home. A few days after they sent me home, I woke up in the middle of the night and the whole room was spinning. And I woke up my girlfriend. I was like, hey, uh, Tell me something. Is the room spinning for you too? <laughs> and uh, I had uh, vertigo and dizziness for the next nine months of my life. So the first three, four months were really incredibly, incredibly difficult. The, mentally, the most difficult time in my life. And uh, I went through some incredible moments in that period, you know, because on the surface, you look totally fine. No, you know, it's not like I have a welt here or a broken arm or something. You know, you look totally fine. Nobody can understand what, you're, what, what I was experiencing in my perceptions, in my everyday reality. Nobody could understand that. Only I could understand that. And um, what, what happened was the infection, it jumped from my lungs up the upper respiratory system into my inner ear. And there's a tube that connects the inner ear to the nose called the eustachian tube. So that became infected and blocked up. That's the tube that releases the pressure. 
Mm. Oh, wow. Um, and the pressure wouldn't release. And uh, this little tiny bone in the middle, in the inner ear, will change your whole life. You know, your whole reality is completely flipped on its head. And it was an incredible process for me. So a uh, real growing up process and coming to terms with things. And uh, from there, I started doing yoga, actually. That's what started me doing yoga. And I quit smoking and uh, really started making incredible pro- you know, steps in my life to not only, clean my, not only clean myself physically, but start to develop myself spiritually. And um, a lot of other experiences I can't even tell you about, but the ones that were most impactful were the ones that were actually, um, you know, the, the bottom point, you know, the lowest points of that whole process. Coming out of that low point is very, very motivating, very full of hope, you know, because you realize, okay, if I, take, I took some steps out of that low point, then, you know, I'm on the road to something getting better. And two weeks later, I would see another small improvement two weeks after that and that was really an incredibly you know powerful experience and it changed my life you know and from there i really uh, focused on developing myself as a person much more than just accumulating fun experiences or kind of fulfilling hedonistic you know selfish desires uh really drew me to try to see what else is going on in my head you know because if this little bone you know this little feature in my inner ear changed my whole perception of the reality, then reality is not what I thought it was. You know, reality is not this concrete, uh, you know, apparent reality. There's so many different realities that one can experience. And uh, yeah, that started with that, that experience. And by the time, you know, later, you know, so I went to travel after Taiwan and it was like a spiritual experience for me. It was a, a period of rehab really as well, you know, where I got my health back. And when I came to, Thai, to Japan in 2007, not only I wasn't smoking, I wasn't drinking either. Like I was, I was completely sober for a number of years, basically trying to get a grip on reality again, you know, because the, the, I kind of lost the thread in a way, you know, you wouldn't necessarily been able to tell, you know, it's not like years and years of psychosis, but just the, the, the kind of flip, you know, of the switch, the switch had been flipped and, uh, and putting the pieces back together was really a powerful experience. So I came to Japan and I came here with the JET program, uh, the government teaching program. Before you get into talking about JET, can I just ask you real quick, did all of that kind of come about uh, because it's kind of a risk of living that lifestyle of being overseas and being a backpacker? Or do you think it was uh, just more your own personality that kind of took to the took you to that point that you were calling kind of your the most hedonistic uh, time of your life and coming out of it? Or was it a combination of both, do you think, or...? Well, surely the, the influences, you know, a lot of influence because to be young and Western traveling in Asia, you know, you have there's a lot of privilege in that. Um, you know, a lot of uh, people see you as a source of, of benefit for themselves, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's women that are looking for a passport, you know, or if it's people that want to do business with you. I can't even tell you guys how many people came up to me to try to do business with me and, and get me started on a business. People used to come up and say, hey, can you get me to America, you know? And here I was, like, in my early 20s backpacking. I'm like, you know, you know that's not, it's not something I can help you with, you know? But you have a certain kind of privilege as a, you know, as a, so to speak, you know, Caucasian Western person. So that's part of it. But, you know, I think it was much more about my path. Because when I was in America, too, when I was there, I was also quite, um, you know, uh, hedonistic and, uh, you know, work hard, play hard. And that's actually what, what the culture taught me. 
You know, that was like one of our expressions at university, work hard, play hard. Uh, so it was this kind of, you know, recklessness and, and party atmosphere, but also get your job done. And uh, that kind of fits in with my family in a way. You know, it's kind of a synthesis of my family. So I think it, it kind of resonated with me too. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone down that path. Uh, like my father is a very stable, kind of career-minded, rock of the family, super responsible. He had the same job at the same company from when he graduated university until he retired. Wow. Sorry, that's two different companies, but it's actually kind of like a hybrid because he was in Israel and then moved to America. But a lot of the management that he worked with in Israel, they all moved together to a, a, a company in America because the industry was shutting down in Israel. So it was almost like this. It was two companies, but pretty much the same. And he had that stability, you know, so uh, that hard work, the stability, you know, rising up and being a manager level. Whereas my mom, she's much more of like, you know, enjoy your life, live for today. And she was also working full time. And when I was a kid, she stopped working. Uh, just the situation was like that. The company downsized and she started playing bridge. And, um, you know, the card game that, so to speak, old people play. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of other people apparently as well. But. Yeah. Well, with, with your dad, because usually they, it's played in couples, isn't it? Like I know my ex-girlfriend when I was growing up in England, she's, her mum used to play with her, her dad and then they split up and then they both remarried and then they both played with their new uh, halves. And ended up, they ended up playing against each other. How awkward is that? Like the yeah, new so that, couples against yeah, each yeah. other. So my dad introduced my mom to the game back in Israel. And uh, she didn't really take to it then. But when they moved to America, <clears throat> she, she got more interested in it. And yeah, it got to the point where they said, a lot of couples say this, it's either the marriage or the bridge. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they stopped playing with each other when they realized that they would just argue about hands on the whole drive home. You know? uh, but um, they still, obviously, you know, they play in a big, you know, environment of maybe 50 tables. Yeah, you play in pairs, you know, maybe 200 people playing in a room. And uh, my mother just like, you know, so fell in love with this and so single-minded. She just, uh, she's amazing. You know, she's actually in America, a national champion. And I could wow. say national champion in Israel, oh, that's impressive, 7 million people. America is more than 300 million people. A national yeah. bridge champion, your mother. National, she's won three national titles. It's an incredible achievement. And she's this very small lady, you know, she's like a five foot something, you know, tiny, little, you know, little woman with red hair. And she walks into the bridge club. It's like LeBron James. You know? <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, Sheila's here. And, you know, the local bridge club, it's just like batting practice for her. You know, she'll win like 99 out of 100 times. It's horrible. But she's so determined and she loves it. You know, she, so that's what she taught me, you know, to do what you love. You know, and if you do what you love, you're going to be successful and you're going to enjoy your life. And she, I see how much joy it's brought to her life. So I think, it, you know, it was also seeded in me, you know, work hard, play hard. And when I traveled in my 20s and, you know, they told me, my mom would be like, don't you want to come and start your career? Aren't you going to come back and do finance or get a master's degree? Uh, it wasn't even a question in my head. The answer was, uh, hell no. no part of my language, you know, because I was so loving what I was doing. And that's the thing, you know, if you're loving what you're doing, you shouldn't change it. You shouldn't change it. What changed? Because obviously you're not traveling as much as, um, as you did before. And now you're running your, your company. So that probably doesn't allow you as much time 
to travel like what what made you switch and decide okay i'm gonna i'm gonna run my own company I have a guess so something may have influenced things. Yeah, the, the, she she influenced someone. Uh, <laughs> but actually, I think it was uh, just reaching the end of the road. So after my three years in Japan, which ended in 2010 as a teacher, I then had much more money than I ever had before. And I felt really rich, you know. I felt like in the backpacking world, I was like 1%. Because <laughs> I had more money and I had time. So um, anyways, I started traveling on that trip. And um, that's when I started doing the meditations. So from Taiwan to Japan, I was basically doing yoga, heavily doing yoga. And I was just kind of dabbling in meditation, experiencing different kinds of meditation. But when I left Japan, um, I then took the next trip. The next trip ended up being three years backpacking. And uh, anyways, for me, that's what backpacking was about. Backpacking was about unplugging from the system. You know, because it was about, you know, discovering the world and also discovering myself, right? So in order to really discover oneself, you have to unplug. You have to start taking off, in my opinion, all of these constructs that the world puts on us, you know? The world puts a lot of constructs on us in terms of, okay, uh, you're a Jewish man or you have this expectation or this skill or you're good at this or you're not good at that. Just start, like, taking all of that off and... You got to unplug. For, I had to unplug from the system. So time was really of essence for that. So when I did my 19-month trip and then another year trip, and then it was a chance to do a really long trip, I didn't hesitate either. And I just left, you know, left Japan. And the first place I went after visiting my family was Colombia, you know, the, the, one of the most polar opposites to Japan, you know. So, um, yeah, I actually traveled with my sister on that trip, and I took her for four months around South America. We had incredible times, you know, and that was a life-changing experience for her. So that was amazing to see my sister experiencing life-changing events while traveling, while backpacking. And, um, and, and I was still fully into it, you know. Then I went to Israel, but from there I went to Nepal and started doing meditation. And uh, I got in, involved in a meditation called Vipassana, which is uh, meditation uh, famous for 10-day retreats where there's no speaking. And all you're doing is meditating all day and eating and sleeping. So uh, I got into this and started doing meditation courses one after the next and traveling. And uh, after the first year of that three-year trip, I met my wife. And we met in northern India in a place called Ladakh, which is really um, one of the last uh, bastions of Tibetan culture in the world. It's uh, more Tibetan than Tibet, you know, with the Chinese repression I've been across Tibet as well, so I can say that confidently. Uh, Ladakh is a, is a very special place where a lot of the traditions were never broken, you know, because the Indians are multi, are pluralistic in their religious beliefs. So there's no repression of religion in India. And anyways, we met up there. It's an amazing place. And uh, we met on a bus. And uh, yeah, as we were leaving Ladakh, it was like, uh, it was in September. It was literally one of the last buses to go. And uh, we had assigned seats right next to each other. And this was not just a bus to the next town. This was a two-day bus. You know, wow. so, yeah, it was really an amazing time. And uh, we met at 4.30 in the morning. And I think if you can enjoy someone's company at that time of day, you know, that's a good sign. And uh, we met. And the first thing we talked about, because she's from Sahalin, you know, she's from Karafuto. Oh, wow. Island to the north of Hokkaido. Yeah, yeah, okay. She's Russian. And so the first thing we talked about is like, she was like, wow, you lived in Sapporo? She'd never been to Sapporo. She'd never been to Japan. And wow, you're from Sahalin? You know, so right away we had that. 
but I can say that, you know, she's part of the reason maybe that why, but I don't think she's the main reason why I ended up stopping backpacking. I think uh, kind of reached the end of the road, you know, and that's something else I, I realized that no matter, you know, how amazing something is, eventually the experience repeats itself. And um, some people can maybe have one experience for a very, very long time. Like my mother, 25 years playing bridge morning and night, every weekend, every tournament, nationals, you know, just crazy commitment. For me, uh, altogether was six years of backpacking and my trips. And, you know, it's, the experiences are amazing, but the return on investment, so to speak, becomes less and less. And so how many amazing archaeological sites, how many amazing people you get to know from scratch and they become like you know close friends to you how many you know uh people's houses do you sleep in how many borders and buses and trains can you cross and and take how much how much can you experience before the experience starts to repeat and repeat and one thing about backpacking that's way underrated is it's a exhausting experience it's physically and mentally exhausting and yeah i mean some people say oh i went backpacking they stayed actually three months in one town you know, okay, you, people can say what they want, but the true act of backpacking is to be on the move, to be on the move. And uh, rarely did I spend more than two or three weeks in any one spot. And usually I spend just two or three days. So that whole motion of backpacking and traveling over land, it's exhausting. And in 2013, at the end of that three-year trip, even before then, and after the second year, I realized that I was running out of gas. You know, I was running out of uh, energy. And it's not good, too, because, you know, you want to be there for people, too. You know, people, local people that are meeting you also want to see that you're interested in their culture. They want to see that you come with energy and that you want to meet them, too. It's definitely an interchange of, of, of experiences. So anyways, I realized that, OK, you know, I need to probably think about another longer stint as, te as English teaching. And my mom said to me, why don't you think about going back to Japan? You, you, you had a good time there. You, you really you had a good experience there. So I applied from Central America, where I was at the time, to come back to Japan. Oh, no, no, I applied from China, actually, but it takes a long time to hear back from them. So I was in Central America, and I remember when I opened the email in Costa Rica, and I saw that I had been accepted again. So then, um, yeah, by then I'd already met Anastasia. And basically the first two years of our relationship uh, was backpacking. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm amazed that she could she could have been with me at that time because – you know, I still feel guilty some of the places that made her sleep, you know? <laughs> but that was part of her experience, too. So, Ida, we're kind of running short of time. I wondered if you wanted to talk about your uh, your company a little bit. Like, how, how did you start it? Um, how, how's it doing now? Um, what, are your, what are your plans moving forward? Right, so um, company, we started it. Uh, right after three years again, about three years on jet the second time. So that brings us to 2016. We got married here um, in Sapporo. And um, on our honeymoon, we actually uh, started to, um, you know, wonder what, what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? Uh, is it going to be continue teaching English? And it was my wife uh, years before that actually said, um, that she thought I'd be a good guide, you know. There was a funny story. We were in India. This was about maybe two weeks after we met, or yeah, maybe two weeks. And I, I we were out uh, hiking, of course. And uh, we were going to this uh, onsen town, actually. It's like a town. It's like a little onsen place at the 
high up in the mountains where there's some seasonal tents, you know, for hippies and backpackers to come stay at. So we're walking up this very narrow gorge, a place called Kirganga. And, um, and we uh, made a mistake, you know, which is we thought we saw, we understood the situation and we're following a shortcut, you know. And we start going up into this shortcut. And we go up and up and up and up and up. And it looks like a trail, you know. It looks like even a number of parallel trails. And we keep going. At some point, the trail starts to get thinner and thinner, still going up the steep side of the mountain, like working our way up, working in the, in the right direction. But uh, as it turned out, we were on the opposite side, the uh, opposite face of where the mountain where we're supposed to go. And we keep going, we keep going. And it's, I'm, I'm looking at the watch, and it's like going to be dark in like 45 minutes. You know, and we are pretty much lost now. I mean, we understand the main trail is way below us, the actual trail. And we're on this, like, you know, mystical shortcut <laughs> somewhere. And, like, you know, Nastia is so headstrong. You know, no, no, I, I think it's here. I think it's here. Let me go check. Let me go. I'm like, all right, you got two minutes, you know, and then we got to turn around, you know. And so later we realized that we were actually following um, goat tracks. <laughs> <laughs> And so we realized, like, this is not the way. We turn around and start booking it down, and it's getting dark, and it's, you know, the footing's tricky, and da-da-da, and we start, like, booking it down. And finally, at last light, we make it back down to the trail. And now it's dark, you know. There's nobody on the trail. You're in the Himalaya. And, you know, I'd actually had a lot of hiking experiences in, in the Himalaya already at that point, you know, because I'd been to Nepal, and I'd hitchhiked across Tibet, and, you know, great experiences. like So I wasn't that worried. And I told Nastia, okay, listen, we just like worked really hard to get down the mountain. We got to take a break. And uh, I pull out my, my portable stove and start making coffee. And her jaw, her jaw dropped, you know. And I think that was like one of the first times I really impressed her. But it was then that she said, uh, yeah, you should totally be a guide, you know. And to this day, she remembers that experience. And uh, I calmed her down. So she always thought I could be a good guide. We thought about opening up some other businesses, too. Uh, it wasn't that we knew that Hokkaido Nature Tours was going to succeed. We thought about opening up a pizzeria, which is kind of a, a dream I had because I worked at pizzerias as a kid. Um, we had an idea of opening up a hostel, some kind of guest house, you know, because we had so many experiences like that while backpacking. Uh, but eventually we settled on the tourism. And uh, at first, you know, we thought it was going to be kind of group tours. Uh, but then we realized that there is this market that um, – that exists for private tours. And that's actually much more suitable, um, especially for the kind of guiding that I wanted to do at that time, which is mountain guiding. And, you know, I love Hokkaido's mountains and I know them very intimately and I want to take people up there. Uh, but taking groups into the mountains is, is not recommended. It's because ultimately within your group, you're always limited by the weakest link, so to speak. Yeah. And it can really affect an, ex an entire experience, you know? And people always kind of overvalue what they think they can do, you know. So uh, I much prefer to guide smaller groups in the mountains. Anyways, we kind of went into that. And then, you know, obviously people don't want to just do hiking. So we expanded our repertoire. And um, now we do kind of everything, you know, from DIY activities, food, crafts, culture, uh, winter sports. Of course, we hook people up with all the activity operators. We have great relationships, things like hot air ballooning, dog sledding. Uh, fishing, you know, whatever, electric, biking, things like that. Um, and, of course, accommodations that, you know, we know the accommodation that work really well. And uh, we went into the private tours. 
And um, it was it was quite hard to get the license, you know. But once we got the license, then we're really uh, poised to to succeed. And uh, you know, I put my heart into it. You know, I was really it was like a kind of a lost period, you know, time in my in my life, <laughs> in a way. Because I mean, when I was working like 14, 16 hour days, I'd be guiding and doing office work at the hotel at night. It, it was just a really amazing but difficult time. And they say the first three years of starting a business is really intense. And it was actually like that. By the fourth year, we had enough help where it wasn't so intense. Um, and this year has been really a breeze, you know. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad I put everything into it, you know, because uh, it was definitely worth it to, to build the foundations of the company. How and how does the process work then? Um, how are you? Are you guys uh, customizing tours, or you have like some uh, kind of uh, base plan that people can view, and then things get built off of that? What is the process exactly? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, go through the websites, and on their website, uh, easy to navigate. There's a lot of information there, anyways, about sample tours and different options. But ultimately, uh, once the person is ready to get in touch with us, you just go to the Contact Us button on the, on the top browser. And there uh, you have three contact forms or four of them, depending if you want to do a day trip, a two-day trip, a longer custom-made trip, or you just want to get in touch with us. Uh, so all really easy-to-use forms. It takes just like a couple minutes. And once we get the email, then we'll be in touch via email and get a lot more of the details. Uh, I are not exactly, you know, what we think you want. If it's uh, kind of shorter trips, day trip, two day trips, where we have a lot of set trips ready to go, we'll send off itineraries. And uh, if it's more of a custom made trip, uh, then uh, we will ask you some follow up questions, you know, trying to narrow down exactly what activities the person wants to do and uh, what kind of, you know, standard of accommodation, any upgrades, you know, starting points, ending points how many people in the group, what kind of people in the group, if it's kids, older people, all those details, we will get more information. And it's a pretty efficient process. Within a few emails, we have enough information to make the itinerary. Or if it's a set trip, we can book it like on the day, you know? So um, a lot of options, but the website really easy to use. Also, we have all the social media stuff. So if somebody's planning on coming to Hokkaido, interested in just seeing more about Hokkaido and how we view it as the guides, uh, as the guide company, are you um, so, are you still guided either or like now you said you got some staff now so are you doing less guiding these days yeah um now because of coronavirus uh we don't have any tours actually all the tours were postponed uh but we're looking forward to starting up tours again uh, we're actually ready to go we just haven't had the demand so we are looking more now uh for the domestic market we've been poised at the international market and um, of course, the company has grown a lot, you know, since I started, we started the company four or five years ago. And when I started, it was me as the sole guide and one other guide. Now we have a whole team of guides. So uh, for myself, I'm the one, you know, I prefer to guide the outdoor tours, the hiking, trekking, camping, overnight, those kind of things. Um, and of course, certain families that I have relationships with, we have repeat families and visitors that come. And of course, I love to see them. So I'll guide those tours. But we have other guides who, um, who are professional guides who are frankly probably have their own expertise that's better than what I can do in terms of explaining about the culture. Obviously, most of our guides are local Japanese guides. Uh, we're actually doing a guiding series now on our social media, introducing our guides. Um, so uh, we try to match the guide up with the guests. 
but yeah, for sure, I still love to guide. And when normal operating procedures, I'm still guiding, uh, whether it's day trips or one week trip, I'm still guiding. Um, not as much, you know, I'm not guiding 25 days a month like I used to, uh, but I'm definitely still guiding. And, um, you know, we have so many tours going that obviously I have a lot of responsibilities in the office as well. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're so excited to like get back to normalcy, you know, to get back to doing what we love, but also just like, you know, sharing normal, happy times with people. Because uh, even if somebody, you know, you guys are teachers, maybe your job wasn't so affected. I'm not really sure. It seems like teaching has returned here to normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're back uh, to normal. Even then, much. everybody can feel the atmosphere has changed, you know, that the air is different. And uh, we just really can't wait to get back to how, how it was. Yeah, I'm not teaching. Uh, my work wasn't affected, hasn't been, fortunately, hasn't been affected too much. But uh, I wanted to just quickly ask you guys, you, you have quite a few uh, uh, awards related to traveling uh, for your company. Uh, you guys have received some awards. And then I heard also you mentioned something about next year's uh, travel adventure or something. Uh, is that related to the summit? What, what type of work you got? What is that and what type of work are you guys going to be doing for that? Yeah, so um, the first question about the awards, yeah, we, we've been, uh, I think, really fortunate and uh, just grateful that, you know, we've been selected and we've uh, been winning awards. And I think that comes from the, the fact that we love what we do. Um, and not just us, you know, of course, now with a bigger team, it's also our guides and our system and how we operate. So uh, the guides that we hire, you know, they're all people that love to travel. You know, they're people that are not so different from me. I mean, I'm fortunate. I can choose the people I want to work with. Uh, so they all have a lot of international experience. They all love travel. They love being with people and showing people the, the goods. So um, I think that kind of joy of travel and, and joy of being with people and showing people around is, um, is what has done it, you know. And also we have a very efficient admin system office system so the package is really high quality and, and you guys you, you guys have uh, both uh foreign guides and also japanese guides too right yeah most of our guides are japanese yeah okay we have right. actually only one other foreign guide right now okay and uh five or six japanese guides so we have a team of about seven or eight of us um including my wife who's not guiding right now anyways but uh we have it's a pretty small team uh but you know it's very carefully chosen and, you know, with guiding, actually, uh, you can't hide the truth for too long. You know, a person might think, oh, I really want to be a guide. It's, it looks like such a great job. Actually, guiding is a very difficult job. Uh, long hours. Uh, it's not just the good. It's also the bad. You know, things come up. Uh, things get stressful sometimes. Sometimes you're with people that you really get along with. Sometimes you're with people that you have to, you know, make the best of it. You know, it's just just life. Um, so, People, very quickly, you see who is doing it for a good time and who really loves to travel and wants to be a guide. So it's not a skill that everybody has. It's not a job that everybody really can succeed at. But figuring out who those people are, I think that's a big part of why we're successful. And we've also uh, really controlled the growth. We could have grown a whole lot faster. We really could have. Um, all of our growth happened. We didn't advertise at all. We never advertised before this present period of this summer. Now, because of the downturn, we're advertising on social media. But we didn't pay one yen for advertising for the first five years, you know. And that's because of our success and word of mouth and obviously Google, people clicking on you and all the reviews on TripAdvisor and all of that creates the momentum. And also, of course, we benefited from the great growth of travel. 
and tourism in Japan in Hokkaido. Um, so we were, I was always much more focused on the, the process and maintaining the quality. That was the most important thing. So I think that's a big part of you know, also why we won awards. And for the second part of the question about the ATWS, yes, the Adventure Travel World Summit. So that is a, uh, a pretty significant in the tourism industry, in the travel industry, uh, adventure travel. And so what's really uh, embedded in that is more about the outdoor activities and especially things that are considered quote unquote adventure. So maybe it's whitewater rafting, maybe it's, uh, you know, trekking tours, maybe it's uh, cycling tours, you know, where you're spending every day on the bike. It's, it's more geared towards the not quite the mainstream nature, nature um, clientele that we generally have, but people who are more specific. People who come to Japan for a one-week powder trip, uh, people who come here for you know cycling tour, people who come just for trekking. We tend to have our guests tend to want more variety. You know, they want a bit of a deeper, more well-rounded Japan experience. But this ATWS uh, focuses really on this uh, kind of adventure, uh, adrenaline experiences, and uh, we are uh, part of that. So that's really exciting. So we're going to be uh, hopefully working in, the, in hiking to introduce people to hiking and doing sample tours for that. Uh, but that is being postponed. That was supposed to happen this September. It's mm -hmm. being postponed till uh, next year, September 2021. And it's mostly based on Europe and America. Most years it's in Europe and uh, America, North America, South America. Uh, but the fact that it was Hokkaido was chosen was a really big deal for Japan and for Hokkaido. Because, um, you know, largely, as you guys know, Hokkaido is not a household name in the West. Whereas in Asia, it's really a household name. It's really a product already uh, through the government, you know, big media campaigns and just so many people coming here and spreading the word. Uh, the fraction of Westerners that come to Hokkaido as opposed to Asians is, uh, I mean, it's just a tiny fraction. And so there's still so much growth to be had in Europe and America to come to Hokkaido. Everybody knows Tokyo and Kyoto. Not everybody knows Hokkaido. So um, it is a, it, it's an interesting market to develop, and I'm so happy to do it. Well, Ido, thanks for, thanks for joining us today, man. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your, your story and your journey from, uh, from Israel all the way to Hokkaido Nature Tours. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Check out the website, everyone, HokkaidoNatureTours.com. Find out everything they have to offer and book a tour. Yeah, good luck with uh, good luck with the business, and hope I'm sure things will pick up soon once uh, this whole situation dies down. Yeah, I'm not sure about 2020, but uh, <laughs> you know, time is always moving. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, we'll be good. 2020 forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank Thanks, you. Edo. Cheers. Yeah. See you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.